Hi, friends. You are listening to the EntreEd Talk podcast, where we feature amazing educators and entrepreneurs showcasing how you can bring entrepreneurship into the classroom. We believe entrepreneurship is for everyone. I am your host, Toy Hirschman, and I am so glad you chose to join me on this journey. Let's go. All right. Welcome back, friends, to another exciting episode of the EntreEd Talk podcast. Here with me is Alexandra Shapiro. Alexandra is a criminal defense lawyer and one of the leading appellate lawyers in the United States. She was one of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's first clerks on the Supreme Court, served as a federal prosecutor in Manhattan, and later founded an elite litigation boutique firm that handles many high-profile cases. In early 2021, Alexandra embarked on a new journey, fiction writing. She wanted to raise awareness about problems with the criminal justice system and how sometimes even innocent people can get unfairly prosecuted in the United States. The book is a legal thriller and has the working title of Presumed Guilty, and she's expected to publish this December. So I am so excited to learn all about this, her entrepreneurial journey, her book, and everything. Alexandra is a native New Yorker and has three kids, lives in Manhattan with her husband, who's also a criminal defense lawyer. I'm not going to mess with you guys ever. <laughs> and, and, and is an avid photographer as well. I don't know how all you do all of that stuff, but Alexandra, welcome so much. We're so excited to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. This is really cool. I don't know that we've ever had someone <laughs> with your background on the show before. And this is so cool because we, we love to feature really interesting people, but we also love to feature people who are also entrepreneurs that have become entrepreneurs in not one of the spaces that you normally hear about. So you've got all kinds of stuff going on. But before we dive into that, can you give our audience a little bit more of your background, how you got to where you are today and your own entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey in the field of law and with your book? Sure. Um, so I graduated from law school in the early 90s. And at the beginning of my career, I was a law clerk for one year uh, for a, <clears throat> a federal appellate judge in Washington, D.C. named Stephen Williams. And uh, after that, clerk for Justice Ginsburg um, in her first year on the court. And then I became a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, which is the federal prosecutor's office in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I, I while I was there, I tried a lot of criminal cases. I did federal criminal investigations and as well as appeals. Um, and then I went into private practice at a big international law firm here in New York called Latham and Watkins. Um, and I was there practicing for about a little less than 10 years. And then I founded my own firm in 2009. Um, so um, yeah, so I did that with, uh, at the time, three other lawyers um, and you know, we've grown over the years. We fairly quickly grew to about 10. And then we've been sort of a roughly nine to 12 lawyers at different times um, since then. Uh, but it's it's been a great experience to be running my own small firm. We do a lot of interesting work, not only uh, white collar criminal defense, which is sort of my bread and butter, um, but different kinds of appeals, uh, many, you know, many different type of subject matters, both criminal and civil. And um, I have one partner who specializes in media and entertainment law, does a lot of copyright and trademark work for 
uh, music companies, entertainment companies, artists, and um, one of my other partners, newer partners, who actually is my husband, who joined our firm a couple of years ago. He does a lot of trial work of various different types, both criminal and civil. Wow. So what made you decide to strike out on your own after having an astounding career already <laughs> before you before you did that? Because that's a little I mean, that's that's that risky entrepreneurship proposition, right? Yeah, no, it was definitely risky. And I had spent the bulk of my career like in these large institutions, first the federal government and then this uh, very large law firm that at the time had, I think, you know, somewhere between around 2000 lawyers, I think when I left, it's even bigger now and offices all over the world. And I, um, part of it was um, that I, I had always kind of secretly thought maybe it would be cool to start my own firm. I really wanted more flexibility to be able to take on the kinds of cases that I found most interesting without um, the kind of constraints that big institutions really need to have in terms of, um, you know, uh, both large law firms tend to charge really high rates and um, they're not as, at least my firm, but many fir large firms are just not that flexible if you want to give a substantial discount to someone who can't afford those rates but has a really interesting case or something like that. And then also there are many conflicts of interest that are built into working at a large law firm like that because they represent so many different institutions, you know, banks, public companies, um, accounting firms. And I had found over the years that although I was able to work on a lot of interesting matters that sometimes I had to turn down, um, particularly in the criminal area, some interesting representations of individuals who, um, you know, the, the firm had some conflict with. So I thought it was, um, you know, and I did it at the uh, right around the height of the financial crisis, which was its own kind of challenge. Um, and I think I was lucky in the sense that um, as someone who's a litigator, as opposed to like a business lawyer, um, it's easier to still stay busy and have a lot of work during um, a financial downturn because people don't stop suing each other. They, the government doesn't stop prosecuting people for crimes. Um, so the fact that there aren't as many deals or something, it just wasn't going to impact what we were trying to do since we don't do that kind of work. We're only involved in litigation. Wow. So after, I mean, that sounds exciting and I'm being honest, I don't know a whole lot about legal, the legal process and the whole industry, but it's fascinating to me. Um, and thank goodness, I don't know. I, right, exactly. Well, I, it's funny that you said that because I always feel like, particularly in my line of work where I do a lot of um, white collar defense is or appeals when someone's lost a case is, you know, I think the clients certainly wish they weren't having to hire me. So it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think most people don't want to have to deal with lawyers and I totally understand that. <laughs> Uh, I think it's, I think it's really exciting. I'm just, I, you know, you watch the shows and, and read books and things and you're like, oh, that looks so exciting, but I don't understand. <laughs> so speaking of books, uh, so you are writing a book, which is really cool. And it's, it's highlighting, I'll let you, I'm not going to say much, but I'll let you highlight what it's about, but it's talking about some of the issues that happen in the legal field. And I think that that's really important, but it's also fiction. So I'd love for you to just kind of describe what it's about and what you're, 
doing with it and what you plan to do with it. Sure. So, um, so over the years, you know, particularly now I've now been doing criminal defense work for around 20 years. Um, and, um, although I think our criminal justice system is certainly one of the best in the world, there are a number of cases that I've personally handled in which, you know, something, I felt something unfair or wrong happened to a client accused of a crime. Um, you know, sometimes justice ultimately prevails. The client is accused of a crime wrongly. They, they lose the trial, but they win the appeal. Uh, or maybe if they're lucky, they get acquitted at trial. But even in those circumstances, um, you know, their lives are destroyed in, in so many ways. And, and, and there also are the rare cases as well where um, the system can fail, you know, regardless of the resources the client has. And, you know, they may have good lawyers, um, but could still end up going to prison. Um, and, and I wanted to sort of uh, um, raise attention to that, that issue. And um, at the same time, I'd all, always kind of secretly harbored the idea of writing fiction. Um, and I was originally actually thinking about writing a nonfiction book about one of my cases, but it's it's a fairly complicated financial transaction. A lot of my white collar works involves these um, different kinds of transactions. And I want I, I was afraid that it, it just wouldn't appeal to a mass audience and that it'd be harder to get the message across. And um, Eric Coaster, the uh, professor at the Book Creator Institute, where you and I met, when I had my first call with him and I was telling him about this, he said, well, why don't you write a novel? And I thought, well, that's a great idea, especially because I'd always wanted to try that. It was a little intimidating, you know, to, to take turn my hand to fiction um, and challenging. But I thought it was a it, it made sense and it's a, it was a better way to try to create a simplified story that would get the message across and hopefully be, you know, entertaining and in interesting to a wide variety of readers. So that's how I ended up on this journey. And I think the fact that we were undergoing a pandemic probably helped just because I think a lot of people were trying new things during the pandemic. And um, so that's, that's how it came about. Awesome. Well, could you tell us a little bit about what the story about? Yeah, so um, the the lead character is, uh, the protagonist is a woman named Emma Simpson, who is a hedge fund manager at a hedge fund in New York. And um, what happens in the story is that um, there's some prosecutors in the Southern District of New York who are, they're investigating insider trading, and they are trying to see if they can make a case that her fund is involved in insider trading. And it's, they're not getting the, basically they're not finding the evidence, um, but they're very aggressive and they, they want to bring a case and they ultimately end up prosecuting her for an email she wrote during the investigation, um, which in which, um, th which they say was obstruction of justice. Basically it was an email, very short email, happened in the course of a long busy day where she was doing a lot of other things. Uh, and um, uh, it, it, basically uh, endorses a colleague's recommendation to people in her office that they follow what's called a document retention policy, which a lot, most companies have. It basically says, you know, you have to keep certain documents for a particular period of time, but you should throw out other things. And it's very routine and standard, but she gets prosecuted and goes to trial for obstruction of justice for sending that email. And, um, 
she is uh, she's about 45 years old. She also lives in upstate New York and has a long commute every day um, because she wanted to move her family to this uh, to this farm in upstate New York so that they could have a better kind of experience. Her kids could have a better experience growing up and things like that. And so it tells tells the story, the investigation and the trial and. I probably shouldn't give away any more than that, but no spoilers. That's the basic gist of it. <laughs> that's awesome. I love how you leveraged your background and things you've experienced to be. I think writing fiction it it does seem very intimidating, but I think that that's really cool that you're able to to try that, and that that would definitely be out of my comfort zone as as well. And it's just um, it's neat to be able to take some of those components of your of your background and put them into into your creation. So. That's awesome. Um, how, what do you see happening? Um, so the book gets published and you're still practicing law. So what do you see happening after that, after that in the future? What's kind of coming down the road, do you think, or, or would, or what would you like to have happen? Well, I'm hoping that once it's published that I can get opportunities to um, you know, do book talks and book signings and, and things like other podcasts and um, that will around the country, hopefully, that will help me raise awareness about some of these issues and um, kind of encourage readers and you know others in the community to to really think about and have dialogue about questions like how can we make the criminal justice system fairer? You know what reforms can help ensure that prosecutors investigate with an open mind and don't rush to judgment. And, um, you know, how can we make sure that um, people take in the system, including jurors who are so critical and are composed of, you know, ordinary lay lay people who typically don't encounter the criminal justice system? How can we get them to take the presumption of innocence seriously? And I think it's totally understandable, but I I believe that a lot of jurors, um, you know, come into most cases and they, I'm sure they most jurors try to be impartial and they try to put this out of their head, but they probably give the prosecution the benefit of the doubt. And they probably assume that, you know, hey, if a case was brought, the person probably did it. And that may be true in the majority of cases. But um, I just want to raise awareness about this in part also so that when people are called to jury service, you know, they really put the prosecution to their burden of proof and really try to as best they can, you know, um, think about the presumption of innocence and make sure that that um, that you know, before they reach a verdict, that that they've been as fair as they can be. So, wow, I love that. I love that message, and I love that that's what you're trying to do with with the book. That's something that's definitely needed. But you're right. I'm just sitting. To be honest, I'm sitting here thinking if I was on jury duty, there probably would be something in my brain like, well why am I even here? If this person, if, you know, if there's not a little bit of truth in, then that makes, that makes sense. Even though, you know, that that's not always the case. That's, that's really cool. So um, you are doing all kinds of things. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know if the pandemic helped you. It didn't give me any extra time back. It made me <laughs> It's, you know, being stuck in my house and being the um, unpaid principal of my own kids homeschool academy <laughs> was, was a little bit challenging in addition to all these other things. So how, how do you juggle it all? Do you have a secret for, I mean, you like, and you also have this great art hobby too. And 
full-time job and you're writing a book and you have three children and it's kind of amazing. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I don't have any great secret except, except um, I think I'm lucky at this point and it's a little easier at this point because my kids are, have gotten older. So um, it was, I don't think I could have done, you know, written a book while doing my job when my kids were younger, but um, one of them just graduated from college, another one's in college. And then we have one at home who's in high school. So it's a little bit easier because the one, even the one who's home, he just turned 17. He's pretty independent. So I don't have to spend as much time, um, you know, just kind of with all the, all the, like during the pandemic, for instance, since my son was in 10th grade, it wasn't like a lot of people I talked to, and maybe you're one of them who had younger children and they really had to, as you said, kind of homeschool them during this remote schooling. I mean, so I think I had, I, you know, that helps a lot to free up a little more time, but in all honesty, I mean, I basically wrote the book at nights and on weekends. And um, so it's always hard to, to manage the time and the, you know, I really do enjoy taking pictures um, and I go in kind of spurts and especially if I'm lucky enough, and this wasn't the case, obviously during a lot of the pandemic, but to be able to travel on a vacation, I take a lot of pictures or, uh, you know, Evan on the weekends and things like that. Um, but, uh, and I, I did a little bit of that in the pandemic, but it's been able to do more recently as things have opened up and there's been more, more, um, more time to get out of the house basically. It's like so many ways you can take pictures out your window. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, that's totally true. And you can, you can find, um, there, you can find, uh, interesting, uh, I don't know. Um, I even just like sometimes mundane objects. Like I remember my, my son who I mentioned, he took a photography class and one of the assignments was to take like 10 pictures of mundane objects. So, you know, I, we went around the house coming up with ideas of like little things he could take pictures of. And a couple of them, you know, it was all him, not me, but they, they were pretty interesting. So, you know, there's always interesting ways you can make art out of almost anything. I think. Yeah. I, it took me a really long time to learn about that concept and the, and the idea of being creative and, you know, it's, I, I waited way too long, but I still have time. I hope. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> be creative like that and to do different things. Um, so we have, uh, one of the things that we, that we talk to our educators and our friends about when we, as entre-edits, we go out and we talk to students and teachers, you know, we are 100% about being entrepreneurial, whether you work for a company and you just have that mindset or whether you go out and do something on your own or whether you do a little bit of both. Um, but I always like to talk about the fact that, that being an entrepreneur is super cool and it's really amazing, the, the benefits you can get out of it, but it's also really hard. <laughs> and yeah. so you talked about... Um, this idea that, you know, yeah, you, you wanted to do this. This was a, a passion of yours to write this book, but you've got this whole pile of other things that you have to take care of. And so it was at night. And I think that a lot of people that start a business and they try to be, they want to be safe and they want to make sure that they're, you know, they're taking risk, but it's an educated risk. You know, they have to put this extra time in and they have to do things that they might not always want to do. <laughs> right like be a zombie in the middle of the night, which is what I've had to do too. But I think that that's, that's something we like to drive home. It's, it's so worth it. 
but um, it, there, it does take a lot. It does take a lot of grit and perseverance to do, to do all of those things. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and I think, you know, um, you got to, I, I think it, it, it can be challenging and you're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to fail at some things, but if you, um, if you have the determination to keep, keep going, it's going to be incredibly rewarding because it's going to be something, whatever it is that, you know, you've built and you've followed your passion. And, um, and so hopefully, you know, if it's a success, it's going to be something that you're going to be really proud of. And, and just on a day-to-day basis, you're going to be doing work that you enjoy doing. And I think that's really key to, to being, uh, you know, a, a happy person. Yeah, I think that that's that's very inspiring. We have uh, in our we have a lot of teachers and edu- other types of educators, not just K through twelve teachers. We have college and university level folks, and all kinds of other people that are teaching in different capacities mm-hmm. uh, that listen to the podcast. And so, what advice might you give to to any of those folks who? want to be able to help inspire their students to become entrepreneurial in nature. And then also the second part of that is what might you give a young person who's like, you know, I'm really into law and and now I'm listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, oh, that's cool. You know, I could have my own firm and I could write a book and, and some of those, some of those types of things. Yeah. So um, let me, I'll take the last one first because it's a little bit easier, I guess. Um, I would say I couldn't have done what I did without developing experience first in as a lawyer and in different aspects of law. So I worked for the government for a while. I worked for a large private law firm for a while. I think the experience I gained both in terms of developing my skills as a lawyer and then in the private law firm, learning a lot about the business of law, which is really important to understand if you want to start a law firm, um, those were critical experiences that I was, you know, gave me uh, the ability to really develop a successful law firm. Now, there are people who, you know, hang out their shingle right after law school and, you know, kudos to them. I don't think I would have built the practice that I have today if I had tried something like that because I learned so much um, just you know, getting the my, the legal experience, but also working with so many great lawyers at these other institutions who really taught me a lot about, um, you know, how to be a great lawyer and 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 then many other facets of it, like, you know, how to deal with clients and manage the many other challenges of being a lawyer in private practice. So I would recommend um, if someone's interested in doing this, that they they get some experience first, whether it be you know, in a government job and a public interest job or at another law firm and uh, develop their legal skills a bit in whatever area they want to practice in. And then, you know, um, and then once, and also the other thing is you build a network um, when you have these other jobs and it's tremendously helpful to have a network of other professionals who you've worked with, who think well of you, because that's where you get your referrals. Um, so that would be my recommendation to uh, people thinking about becoming lawyers and, and, and having their own firms. Um, and um, with regard to the, the teachers, um, I guess, um, I guess I, I would definitely, there are a bunch of things, I mean, that I can think of. I mean, one thing is to just, because it depends on the field and everything, but I think that 
um, people should be encouraged to kind of figure out what they want to do and then, you know, kind of research it and um, figure out, you know, what's your business plan? Like, how are you going to do this? Start thinking about who you know, who might be able to help you get started, who might be a potential client. Um, you know, those are just a few things that come to mind. I love that you said that about networks, because that's a really a big deal. And I'm and probably more so in your field than some others, but it's a big deal mm-hmm. across the board. We had a guest on um, a little bit ago, Stephanie Krauss, and she wrote a book about the some of the competencies and things that you need to bring to young people. And part of that is showing them the power of developing a network. And, you know, so you have people that will up, you know, you've developed this network, you'll have people that uplift you. So when you do strike out on your own and you do start, you know, your, in your case, your law firm, you have people who are willing to refer to you and people who are willing to, to introduce you and how important that is to develop. It's a, it's a tough skill these yeah. days. <laughs> no, it, it definitely is. And I think, you know, I mean, I myself, when I was younger, was in some ways a very shy person and I think it takes um, it takes a little bit of experience. Some people are much more naturally extroverted than I am, but I think um, I think it's important to encourage young people, in particular, to just you know not be shy about um, reaching out and introducing themselves to people. You'd be surprised how how often um, people are interested in making new acquaintances and kind of helping you once they learn about your project. Um, and uh, so you, you you should try not to be to be shy about that. And then, you know, one introduction can often lead to another one and and so on. And, um, you know, I think it takes some practice to get comfortable doing that, but it will be very rewarding. And and one nice thing about um, for young people that didn't really exist when I was much younger is all the technology. So, you know, these this social media and how you can kind of not only make connections, but keep in touch with people much more easily people move all over, but if they're on your Instagram or whatever it is, you know, it's just, um, I think, I think, you know, my kids on their social media accounts, they have so many friends and I know that they're not close friends with all these people, but, but they're sort of already building their network that way. That's that. Um, and, and I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the technology is great for that. As long as they're using it for for, for not even well, yeah no exactly <laughs> I mean certainly not hopefully they're not like just connecting with strangers or anything like that but you know I I really was more thinking about um, for instance um, uh, a couple to my two younger kids went to a different school for high school than before they went to one school through eighth grade but they also went to summer camp and so they have like sort of their friend group from the, the middle school, as well as their camp friends and their high school friends. And then, you know, it's sort of those different networks. I, um, that's really what I was talking about. No, no, I knew, I knew what you meant. I just, yeah. I mean, we, we talk a lot about to, to students about um, when you're, when your social media can be really great and it can be really, really detrimental. And, and yeah. you, you know, you have to be cautious of, when you're building that network, you make sure you have a, a kind of a blueprint or plan of what kind of network you want. And that kind of falls back on, you know, your ethics and morals and what you plan on doing in the future. And so that's, that's a, a tricky, so I'm navigating that with my children currently. So. Yeah, no, that's a big issue. And then the other thing too is, is, and I have, we haven't had any issues in our family with this, but 
you know, other kids at school sometimes do is, is trying to teach younger people um, the importance of privacy and boundaries and figuring out, you know, that they need to be careful about what they put in a public social media post, as opposed to, you know, what they're talking to their friends on the phone about or whatever, or what's a private conversation and, and not, you know, making everything public, um, which I think is something that, that a lot of kids these days blur the boundaries of because of the nature of the technology and the society we live in. And I think it can, can be counterproductive in a whole host of different ways. Yeah, I know. And you might've even dealt with some of this in your practice, but this, you know, these kids right now, like my kids, your kids, the, the, they were born on social media. Like they're like, and I'm guilty of this too. And I read an article a little bit ago and I was like, Oh no, I did it too. Where, you know, you, they're, they've been on their faces been on social media since they were pretty much born. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's, you know, I've kind of, I feel like I've kind of contributed to that blurring of the the boundaries because, you know, 20 years from now, somebody could go back and hopefully there's nothing, you know, nothing bad, but you know, you could do something stupid when you're Sure. A, a young kid. And then it could haunt you forever and destroy, like you mentioned before about people who even, even if they're innocent, they go through this process and it destroys their entire reputation and probably drains their bank accounts and all of that stuff. And, you know, that's, that's a terrible thing. So that's, it's, it's scary, but I mean, it's good too. It's kind of a strange mixed bag. Yep. But anyway, well, Alexandra, I'm so excited about your book and that you decided to to take this journey. And I'm excited about your law firm too. And just congratulations on on everything and your success. This is this is really amazing what you're doing. Thanks so much. And and really thanks a lot for having me. This is great. I hope that the book blows up and and has wild success. And then you get to share this message with the rest of the world. It's really cool. So before we go, um, how can people, where can people go to find out more about you, your law firm, your book, and all the cool stuff that you're doing and, you know, only share what you're willing to share. <laughs> Don't sure. No, the, probably the best, uh, the best way would be, so my law firm has a website. It's www.shapiroarato.com. Um, and that has all the information about my practice, um, my colleagues and their practice and what we do. And then I, uh, recently initiated a personal website to promote the book and that's www.alexandrashapiro.com and has some information about the book. And it also has uh, links to pre-order, which will take you to the Indiegogo website where I'm doing the, uh, crowdfunding campaign. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so excited to have met you and I'm just wish you all the luck in the world. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks for being on. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.